Bulletproof Radio, a state of high performance. You're listening to Bulletproof Radio with Dave Asprey. When you hear someone talk about blood sugar, you might zone out. That's because a lot of us think that it's only relevant to people with type 2 diabetes. But blood sugar is a topic that everyone should understand. If you want to feel good and have energy, you need to balance your blood sugar. Research shows that even healthy people have wild swings in their blood sugar right after they eat, and spikes in blood sugar make your pancreas work harder. They also make you older, and they put you at a greater risk for weight gain, heart attack, and stroke. Here's why I'm talking about this. Bioptimizers has a new product called Blood Sugar Breakthrough. You take two capsules 15 minutes before a meal. Your body will push carbs and glucose into your muscles for use as fuel instead of fat. That means you get stable energy and you don't have that post-meal crash. Better yet, you can improve your workouts and get better gains at the gym. But the biggest benefit is that it'll improve your overall health. Just go to bloodsugarbreakthrough.health for an exclusive 10% off. Today's cool fact of the day is that your stomach produces another complete layer of mucus every two weeks, which keeps your stomach from digesting itself which it turns out is really inconvenient. If you go on a zero carb diet for very long periods of time, you actually do get to the point where you don't have enough carbohydrate to make mucus and tear secretions adequately, and this can lead to problems with your digestive tract. I figured this out myself when I went on a two to three month extreme low carb experiment and found it made my eyes dry, my sinuses dry, and reduce my sleep. For 25 years, I've had a strong passion for understanding the science behind why we age and what we can do about it. One of the most groundbreaking discoveries in the last two decades is senolytics. Senolytics are plant-derived or pharmaceutical ingredients that can help your body drop old, worn-out cells. Scientists call them senescent cells, and in my books, I call them zombie cells. As you age, those senescent cells build up in your body. They live for a long time and they eat up your energy. There is a hack for this. It's called Qualia Senolytic. Your podcast sponsor, Neurohacker Collective, created Qualia Senolytic. It eliminates those zombie cells and has a clinical study that supports its effectiveness. I really felt a difference in how my body moved after just a couple months on Qualia Senolytic. It's upped my energy level even more, and my joints feel really good. If you're over 30 and you want to use a clinically tested formula to help you feel younger, try Qualia Synalytic. To get younger now, visit neurohacker.com Dave and try it risk-free for up to 100 days. Use code Dave at checkout to get 15%. That's neurohacker.com Dave. Use code Dave. Today, we've got an old friend, John Durant. I first met John about three years ago in New York City when he was just on the, I think it was a Stephen Colbert show, and he had this awesome paleo versus vegan video, which I featured on the blog that was truly funny, done in the spirit of comedy about you know who can sit on tax for longer, who can freeze in New York City cold air for longer, and, and it just made me laugh. So I reached out and said, John, we got to hook up. And uh, we ate at some semi-raw meat kind of place in New York and, and got to be friends. John's 
kind of a badass. He studied evolutionary psychology at Harvard, and he just wrote The Paleo Manifesto, which is a pretty cool book. And he's the only guy I know who's a professional caveman, which is at least as cool as being a professional biohacker. He's one of the original leaders of the ancestral health movement that goes a little bit beyond just paleo. And he's an advisor to food bars and health startups, and including one that makes a cricket-based protein bar. This is not cricket the sport. This is cricket, you know, like bugs. So we're going to talk about that for sure. And he's also written for magazines like Men's Health and for Livestrong. And you can find him at huntergatherer.com. John, welcome to the show. Good to be here, Dave. For those of you watching the show on YouTube, instead of uh, just listening in your car, I got to tell you, it looks like I'm speaking to Jesus wearing headphones, <laughs> like DJ Jesus or something. Every, every word I say is truth. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm infallible. I'm infallible. No, That's the virtue of looking like Jesus. It, is this part of the caveman look, the, the long curly locks and the carefully trimmed beard and the staff? Okay, you don't have a staff, but... <laughs> It's, uh, you know, my, my mother would like nothing more than for me to get a haircut, uh, shave my beard, and meet a nice girl that has the same value she does. Um, and, uh, but I told her that for my work, I need to, I'd love to get a haircut, but I need to keep it long so that I can resemble a caveman. John, would this nice girl be celiac by any chance? <laughs> exactly. Right. So, right, at the end of Colbert, if, if people haven't seen this episode, he, he asked me, uh, what my ideal woman is like, and I say a lactose, uh, a lactose intolerant celiac woman who eats meat. And I, I was actually flooded with emails from lactose intolerant celiac women from around the world who uh, who were very excited to uh, to learn that. Uh, I, I think that is like such a humorous thing. When when I heard that, I almost fell off my chair because it was the way you delivered it was hilarious. But the response from people going, oh, my God, I want someone who has the same lifestyle I do must have been overwhelming because like you feel alone when you're like, no, I'm not going to eat that crap. <laughs> right, exactly. And and so what was really heartwarming about the emails that I received um, was that ha 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 ego boost, you know, celiac women emailing me. What was really cool about it was that all so many of them had viewed uh, their condition as debilitating, as a disability in some sense. But when you take that longer perspective and 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 say, well, it's it's not necessarily historically normal to be eating wheat. That you get to redefine normal, and you're like, oh, instead of broken, I actually um, am eating in a normal way. So that that was very cool. It it when you told me that story over uh, over drinks, I, I think at the time you were drinking a grain based beverage, and I was drinking <laughs> uh, sparkling mineral water, and it was it was a paleo bacon grain based beverage, right? <laughs> uh, I I tend to blot those things from my memory. So. <laughs> Uh, but I, I just remember that. Because remember, because... I'm perfect and infallible. I <laughs> never bent the rules on paleo in every word I say. Did, did I just call out the author of the Paleo Manifesto <laughs> for sampling beer? Oh, I think I did. But that's all right. Uh, you know, part of the whole philosophy here is you don't have to be perfect. And, you know, there are some things that are going to knock you out and some things aren't. And, you know, it, it, it is what it is. And, and perfection is a, is a huge stressor. And I don't think one that you'd recommend either. Yeah, well, I, I mean, the, the ethos of hacking and biohacking is to not let perfection get in the way of 
you know, of completing something or doing something or being able to actually live it on an ongoing basis. So, yeah, I, there, I, I enjoy being social. I'm a young single guy in New York City. I, I, it's hard to be uh, completely uh, alcohol-free or grain-free or gluten-free or anything like that. So it's fine. We're, uh, we're going to have to send you some activated charcoal. I just launched a new coconut charcoal product that's like the only one like it on the market. I'll send you some. So when you have beer, you can take that with it and you'll have less of the non-paleo effects from your beer. Cool, cool. Yeah, I, I, I have a little bit of activated charcoal in my, uh, in my cabinet and then I also have been playing around with some, uh, some white clay. Yeah, bed uh, clay. Yeah, which uh, which is just sort of interesting because you, you actually see. Have you done any research into geophagy? Uh, uh, yes. Right. So it, it, you see this clay eating behavior not just in in some human cultures, but in a wide variety of species like birds and other primates, um, and and they use it to help detoxify their diet. Uh, it's yeah. pretty cool. Those little balls of clay, you know, that, that Indians used to carry with them, so that when they ate questionable food, they would fix it. It it turns out it's harder to get good quality clay in a powder. So you want to get like the prehydrated clay because the powder clays need a certain ratio of water to clay and enough time to be fully hydrated before you eat them. But I've totally gone down that from like zeolites versus bentonites and. Right. I don't know how deep into that stuff you are, but if, if so, let's chat about that on the show because I haven't really talked about that as much as I have charcoal. Charcoal is my favorite, but I bet night's decent. Yeah, I mean, you, <laughs> you will know, you know more about the actual molecular biology and, and chemistry here than I will. Um, but the uh, what, what's sort of amazing is is they think one of the reasons why it's hard to poison rats is because rats will be nibbling on all these clays. And so even if they eat some of the poison, uh, it, it gets deactivated. Interesting. So poison clay is the next big invention for rats. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah, and you know what? That is a money-making business. Let me tell you, as someone who lives in New York City and rides the subway, this is a billion-dollar <laughs> It's a oh, multi-billion dollar idea. That's great. Rats are like detoxifying themselves with more toxins. Um, <laughs> sort of Machiavellian, I think. Uh, when it comes to rats, I'm completely heartless. Uh, fair enough. Uh, they aren't even good eating. I, I got you there. <laughs> so, so one of the reasons I wanted to chat with you again and have you on the show is that here you are, you know, Mr. Paleo, and you've got a chapter on biohacking in your book. Like, are you growing electrodes out of your Cro-Magnon ridges, or what, what's the deal here? So people think that my book is going to be about just be about the paleo diet, or just about food, or just about the paleolithic, and it's a total head fake. It's not true. I um, we can we can learn a lot from uh, our ancestors that are older than the paleolithic, like primates uh, or our primate ancestors, and we can learn about health from more recent ancestors and the information age. So yeah, I've got this chapter on biohacking that is is really about um, some of the insights that we gained about human health when we started to realize that biology is an information technology. So so the chapter kicks off with with Watson and Crick uh, discovering the uh, helical structure of, of DNA in 1953. And, and then over the next half century or so, you see this just sort of like 
DNA um, curves around itself, the growth of computers and, and the growth of, of understanding biology as an information technology were very much intertwined. All this genomic analysis that we're doing now, completely impossible, clearly, without, without the rise of computers and information technology. So, you know, this, this is a whole other era uh, that if you only focus on the Paleolithic, you're completely missing out on this. Um, so I, I'm trying to take a big tent approach in the book and integrate a lot of the principles of biohacking in, in, to, to help customize. Those are the last step, customize how, how, how people live and eat and stuff like that. That is very, I think, very modern and very even futuristic looking because one of the criticisms that that paleo gets is that, okay, well, cavemen didn't really have microscopes and epidemiology and PubMed and Google and like all the things that that really anyone, even not a biohacker, paleo, nutrition guru right. kind of person, but you know, your grandmother gets symptoms, she goes to Google most likely. Like, like it's become a part of how we care for and learn about ourselves. And so to, if you exclude the tweaks based on science, uh, I think you're making a mistake. But if you start from what's a likely chunk of things that our ancestors did, how do we evolve, what's our genes? Yes. That's, that's just the elegant approach, right? Paleo as a hack. Paleo is a hack. It, yeah. it is saying, we don't, we don't know exactly how everybody ate. We know there was some variation based on geography and time and culture and things like that. Um, but it's, it's a quick and dirty starting point for people to get 80% of the way there. And then you can use personal experimentation and biohacking and things like that to, to take you the rest of the way and, and see what works for you. One of the concepts that I, that I really like in the book is this notion of viewing your life and everything in it as your personal habitat. Amen. And, and you know, in a holistic sense. And we now, more than any other species and more than any other time in our species history, have the ability to re-engineer and modify our own habitats to allow us to, to be healthier. So... Um, taking the best of the old with, with the best of the new. The, the goal here is not, uh, you know, is not trying to replicate exactly how people lived in the wild. Let's, uh, let's take the best of the old, mix it with terrific technology and culture and everything that, that civilization has to offer. Now, you talk about living paleo, but dude, you're in New York City, which is like the least paleo place on the <laughs> planet, except for like Beijing. So... Um, <laughs> How how do you bring those two together? Because you are living paleo in, in a modern world, and you know you're one of the guys who really does it. You swing on monkey bars, you eat raw meat, and and you know you're at least as crazy as I am. So, like, how does it work in a big city? Well, it, it's funny. The stereotype of a caveman living in a cave is is inaccurate about the Paleolithic, but it's actually fairly accurate for living in New York City. You know, it's a <laughs> It's a concrete jungle, and, I, and a Manhattan apartment is very much like a cave. So it is a cave-like existence. The, the reality is that people care a lot about their food here. The farmer's markets are great. The restaurants are terrific. Um, and, and folks are very open-minded and willing uh, to hear uh, about people experimenting in their lives. And it, the other thing is it's a, big, it's a big city. And when you have a lot of people, it's, it's easier to get 
a movement off the ground, get that uh, population density. So that, that's part of the reason why, why some, uh, it, it was good to start here, simply because you could get more minds, like-minded people together. But, but, but look, I, I, <laughs> I have a, if I walked my computer into the other room, I have a freezer chest that's currently located in my bedroom. Thank God it's silent. And it has, you know, some organ meats in there and grass-fed beef and salmon and stuff like that, which does make for a few awkward conversations if anybody comes over and is in my bedroom. Have you ever said, that's my last girlfriend? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) You have said that? (laughs) I've said all sorts sorts of things. I've said all sorts of things. No, I, I can also I can also play the genius angle there too. Oh, yeah. lovely. Yeah. The uh, when I I think about that that the vegans and vegetarians listening to the show are going, oh my god, he sleeps with amputated animal parts, you know. But I wouldn't have a problem. Hey, I'm made of animal parts, so it, you know, it, it's shocking how that works. <laughs> and it, it's also though something. I, aren't you a little concerned about EMF from the refrigerator coils? Because refrigerator is one of the biggest sources of EMF. Uh, a little bit, but I, this is a, <laughs> I, right now, given the new apartment that I'm in, I don't have a lot of options. For and, where to and you probably can see like 8,000 Wi-Fi access points. So maybe the refrigerator coils just don't matter. Yeah. New York city is one big EMF. Uh, yeah, exactly. And yeah. are you earthing yourself? You know, I'm not, I'm not totally convinced by earthing. I, um, I'm not totally persuaded. I'm starting to have some concerns about it. I, I live on an Island. Uh, like a beautiful island where I sit now, there's like seven old growth cedars sheltering my office and I have my own pond and my, my earthing wire is like on the banks of the pond where it's perfectly moist. I get pretty good earthing here and it does help with jet lag in other places. But I found out that 70% of electricity in the US goes, the return, the ground is through the earth. But in Europe and Asia, it's back through a wire. So it turns out there's probably a lot of weird like earth EMF stuff going on that isn't natural in North America. And that has raised some legitimate earthing concerns. That said, if you try it and it improves your sleep and your skin tingles for a couple of days and all, which is a good sign that you're returning circulation and nervous system function, then do it. It improves my sleep. But I'm wondering if where I am is a part of that. Yeah. You know, I, I have no idea. I, I am totally in favor of experimenting with any of that stuff. And if it does, if it does improve improve what you do, then, uh, then fabulous. I'm in my third apartment over the last nine months in New York City. So uh, my, my own personal habitat is not living up to my own, my own standards and what I'd like to design for myself. Yeah, it, it's tough in a big city. I, uh, I think it requires a good amount of wealth to have an optimal habitat in a highly dense urban environment. It, it does in every yeah. place I've ever been. Yep. So, so what are we supposed to do then? You know, you've written this book, you talk about habitat design in the book, yet you have very little control over your own habitat. And a lot of our listeners are in the same situation. You know, either you're, you're in mom's basement or you're in a small or a large condo, but it's got a homeowner's association and there's only so much you can do. Like what are the top three most important habitat design things you can do when you don't own your space? Well, I, I mean, people like to talk about diet a lot, but Sleep. I mean, you don't get enough sleep, and everything falls apart. So, it, it, I mean, this is basic stuff. I, I'm sure that you, you know, you've, you've touched on this uh, in multiple places. But making sure that you don't have uh, lights 
in, in your bedroom that you actually have a, a shade that blocks out lights, even tiny uh, LEDs on clocks and things like that. Um, like you, I, I use the um, I use the sunglasses at night that block out the the blue part of the spectrum, and I've really come to like that. That does uh, that does. I, I know I, you know I'm I'm in the middle of a book release, so I'm free. I I'm not going to pretend that I live some optimally healthy lifestyle. Writing a health book is the worst thing I've ever done for my health. <laughs> it's hugely Period. stressful. My, yeah. Mine's coming up. My launch is coming up probably November or maybe January. But yeah, it, it's brutal. Like it, it yeah. eats you because you, you don't ever stop, right? Yeah, don't ever stop. And I, I do, you know, I don't get enough sleep. I get a little overstimulated in the morning. I need a little, you know, I have a hard cider to wind down at night. Um, and it's... Uh, when when you're stressed out, you know, you, sometimes your body craves more carbohydrates and stuff like that. So it, uh, yeah, it's 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 definitely a challenge, even even for me, somebody who's who's writing a book about it. But sleep would be the top thing, and then and then for me, it's 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 food and exercise. Nothing nothing new there. I I just try to I try to avoid sugar at all costs, pretty much. Do you up your carbs though, but like say starch, sweet potatoes or something on a more stressful day? Yeah, or, or it, usually it's more active days if I'm working out or if I'm a little more stressful, you know, stressed out, maybe some white rice, uh, sweet potatoes, stuff like that. I find that, you know, if I'm going to travel to Asia, you know, 18 hours in the air and, and all the just biological stressors that are not exercise related, that having a little bit more carbs helps because lack of carbs does raise cortisol a little bit. Right. So what, right. You, what you want to do is, is well, it's got to have enough cortisol. Maybe I'll just back off today. It seems to work pretty well, but there's a very fine line between, look, I'll have like six cups of rice. Uh, and I don't think that the line is defined for any any group right. of people. It's different for you. It's different each day. It's different on how much yeah. sleep you got. But if you militantly go zero carb for long periods of time, in your experience, what happens? Well, it, it can lead to, in stressful periods, it can lead to cravings for some of these things. And it's also can just be a little bit socially restrictive. And I'm, I, I try to optimize for sustainability on a long-term basis yeah. and actually sticking to something that's 85% rather than, so if, if, if I have an opportunity to add foods in, I take it as long as, you know, if they don't have big drawbacks. So, you know, low carb is fantastic. If you're trying to repair your metabolism, lose weight, um, experiment with your performance. If you've got certain neurological issues where keto might be very helpful, um, I think fasting is a terrific, uh, intermittent fasting is a terrific thing to do. I think those are all great reasons and, and, and cutting away from sugar um, and sort of doing a sugar detox. But if you feel healthy and you feel good and you're active, there, you don't have to be militant about only having X number of carbs a day. Yeah. And I actually think it can become an eating disorder. <laughs> like, oh my God, I measured everything and I had more than 26 grams of, of carbs. You know, I, I'm a bad person. That kind of thinking isn't really useful or even healthy. Well, let me, let me turn that question on you because in the biohacking community, there is a lot of obsessive measurement. And when does that start to become a problem? I think anytime you spend your time and energy measuring something, when you're not actively working on fixing or changing or improving it, 
if you can gather data at no cost to you, gather it, you might need it someday. Like that's a zero sum game. But right. when you start obsessively measuring stuff and you have no idea why you're doing it, you got to think about like, are you just a pack rat, but you didn't have any more space? Like those, uh, what's that TV show uh, about pack yeah. rats? I, I, I don't remember its name. I don't watch that much TV. Yeah. But, but you know, <laughs> there's these people who like, like hoarders, that's what it's called. And, and they stack, you know, magazines and trash like up to the ceilings. You can do this in quantified self. And I know people who are like that. And it's like your house is clean, but your, you know, your hard drive is dirty. And right. So how much of your life did you spend gathering data that didn't help you? Because that's wasted time and effort. Look at specifically, all right, I want to fix my sleep. So you gather your sleep quality data, you gather all of the variables that you think might be there, and then especially focusing on the ones that you're trying to change. And you change a few variables, it improves, it doesn't improve, then you tweak. Uh, but I I agree with you there. That there's a risk there just like, you know, oh my God, I you know, I, I ate exactly the wrong thing. On the flip side, there's some things like gluten. Don't eat it. Like it causes long-term damage from like single intakes. And I just did right. a, a podcast interview yesterday with Dr. Tom O'Brien from the, the Gluten-Free Summit. And we talked about that, you know, memory B cells and how, how it affects you neurologically and biologically. Sort of like don't eat cyanide. You don't need that either. You know, that everything in moderation doesn't seem to apply there. Right, right. (laughs) Well, and what what annoys me a little bit, you know, there's been a little bit of a backlash against the gluten, the rise of gluten-free, where it's like, are we all celiacs? I don't think so. But what what I wish people, I wish people had a little perspective. The starting point just a few years ago was that whole grains were this nectar of the gods and there were no downsides to eating them and they should be the foundation of our diet. I mean, give me a break. I mean, the, the, the existing attitude on grains and wheat was totally, totally skewed just in one direction and did not have any notion of a cost-benefit analysis to these foods. So, so this, is, this is a much-needed correction. Yeah. Um, rant and rant. I, I think that we, we agree on that one pretty strongly. But yeah. you mentioned something a minute ago about fasting and you and I both practice fasting and I'm a huge fan of consuming fat during a fast, you know, the bulletproof coffee or the bulletproof fast. But you did a three day fast at a Trappist monastery. Okay. I did mine like in a cave in in the desert by myself for four <laughs> days. So I beat you by 24 hours, buddy. But, but like, okay, what did you learn at the Trappist monastery versus just doing a fast in your cave in New York? Well, it, it, um, it was very helpful to, as I'm sure you realize, to change, to go into a completely different habitat where you didn't have electronics buzzing, you didn't have people interrupting you, you didn't have the demands of work and things like that. That's, that's very important to make sure it goes well. The, the ascetic tradition among monks is a very fascinating tradition. I mean, you look at a group of people called the Desert Fathers and Mothers in Egypt, um, back in the early parts of Christianity, and they were doing what you did. They would go to a cave in Egypt and fast and be barefoot. There's a group of monks called the Discalced, uh, discalced Orders, which, which means uh, shoeless um, or barefoot. So it, the ascetic tradition was a really cool thing to explore while I was fasting. So I, I went to this uh, Travis Monastery called Gethsemane. It's in Kentucky. It's about an hour south of Louisville. Um, and it's the sort of mother house the, of Trappist monasteries in North America. They had maybe about 80 or so monks there. 
they don't, a lot of people think that Trappist monks take a vow of silence. They don't actually, they aren't completely silent all the time, but, but talking is discouraged. So adding the silent aspect to the fast was a really interesting experience. You realize how naturally chatty humans are and how difficult it can be to go 24 hours without saying anything. It, it's really funny. Some of the, the non-Western cultures are much more comfortable with silence. So it's okay to walk in silence and like, they'll look at you like, why do you white people talk so much? Like, can't you just shut up? Uh, it took me a while to get comfortable with silence as well. Uh, I did a 10 day Buddhist thing in, in Nepal. Oh, did you do it? Cool. I've heard it, of that. It wasn't Vipassana where you're silent for all the time. We were silent yeah. for like 22 hours a day and like talked at lunch while eating vegetarian cuisine that made you fart while meditating. And it, that part I didn't agree with. I, I want the bacon monastery, but that's a different <laughs> You need to start your own branch of Buddhism. <laughs> bacon Buddhism. No, yeah. I've offended every major world religion in one podcast. I'm sorry, yeah, everyone. Like, I respect no, everyone. I know. <laughs> well, you know, I'm an equal opportunity offender. That's how I do. Yeah, me too. <laughs> um, but uh, the, you know, as I'm sure you've discovered, halfway into day two and then into day three, it felt like a mild high. I mean, it... it um, it, uh, I sort of just wanted to sit in the sunshine. My, my energy level declined. My body was adaptively being like, okay, expend less energy. My temperature went down. I got a little bit, a little bit cold, mildly cold. I threw on a, on a sweatshirt. My head was clear, but I didn't really want to focus on anything work-related or anything demanding. Even reading felt a little bit strenuous. And uh, I went for a run on the first day of my fast and on the second and third day, I did not want to move very much. I definitely, some, some people think that, okay, you start fasting, your body's like, you're hungry, you better go hunt. And maybe I felt that on the first day. On day two and three, my, my body was just like, okay, you're not getting food, turn down caloric expenditure in the form of heat and movement. I, I felt the same way. I went for a hike on my first one to two days and the last two days it was like, this cave is really like comfortable, even though it's dusty and rocky. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. My, um, my skin felt amazing. Just amazing. It, I, I sort of wanted to touch my face on days two and three because it just felt so clean and smooth. I've found that fasting definitely helps my complexion. And, uh, it, it was funny. I, we had a short, uh, conversation with the abbot, the, the head of the monastery, and I was talking about my experience fasting, and it, they were fabulous people, very kind, And but he goes, uh, yes, there are some psychological effects that we've noticed, which is why I sometimes don't encourage people to be fasting for too long. <laughs> um, they were, they, you know, they were a little bit thrown by it. It, yeah, it, it definitely definitely felt like a mild high on, on day two or three, from what I've read. So, so the the normal person who has never tried fasting, and right now I'm saying abnormal people try fasting just because less than half of people have tried fasting. There's like millions of people who've tried it. Um, probably, if you haven't tried it, you would imagine enormous suffering be, because like I'm going to be cold, I'm going to be hungry, I'm going to want to kill people, I'm going to pass out, I, I'm going to lose control of my body. Like, like these are visceral things that most people think about. And 
certainly if you get your health and nutrition under control first, right. uh, fasting is not like that. You do get a little cold, but you get a mental clarity that's that's amazing. Like, Did you know that I was fasting during my Colbert interview? No. Yes, yes. <laughs> so um, I, I got maybe I had terrible sleep the night before because I was just nervous. Yeah. And yeah. maybe got four hours of sleep. And I, and I need I need six. To, I know you can do all sorts of amazing things. I need I need six um, at the least. And but I knew that if I ate even a few meals that day. I would be tired as all hell. I had a little bit of pastrami in the morning at about 8 a.m. And then I had a little bit of uh, green tea right before I went on uh, at about 7.30 at night. But other than that, had had nothing for about 24 hours. You didn't look like someone who was losing control physically, falling asleep in your chair, shivering uncontrollably. You looked dialed in. I, I did. I felt great. I yeah. felt great. The, I mean, I... Um, I, I feel focused during what I typically do is 18 to 24 hour fast and I have terrific mental clarity. I know that if I eat too early in the morning and it depends a little bit, you know, it depends on what you're eating, but if I eat too early in the morning, particularly carbohydrate or fruit, my, my brain function just gets way worse. Yeah. Those things are kryptonite in the morning, especially fruit. That's one of the worst things you could have for breakfast, uh, in terms of mental clarity. It's funny how if you optimize, and you, I mean, you know this, if you optimize for mental clarity, you seem to optimize for pretty much everything else. Yeah, like the fat loss is everless. You're, oh, look, I have muscles and I forgot I didn't lift any weights for a year. It, like, it, it just happens automatically. Right. Um, I did this thing. I was in Asia for 12 days, uh, Korea and various parts of China. And I was on this crazy schedule where I was in like seven one-hour meetings every day where I was presenting about biohacking to like hedge fund managers and large investment bankers. So literally land and then start talking and don't stop talking all day every day. And these people were looking at me funny because like I made bulletproof coffee in my room. So all I had in the morning was, an, oh, and I was rationing my butter. I had three sticks of Kerrygold to last me 11 days. And like there's not a lot of good fat in China. So I'm like yeah. a little butter and my I use my brain octane, which is like an extract even of MCT oil. But right. I had that and coffee made my hotel room in the morning. And then we'd go to these really fancy lunches and I'd be like, no thanks. Yeah. <laughs> uh, or I would have like, two tablespoons of rice and I would put like, like I would just pour butter and MCT on them and it would be like uh, something to soak up the fat. And right, right. It was, it was like, they just looked at me funny. I'm like, guys, sorry. If you want me to continue nailing every meeting over and over for 11 days straight, you're just gonna have to let, let me eat weird stuff. Right. I'm sorry, like the picking duck, which I dearly love. Like I'm not touching that stuff because I will be tired and I'm not going to be focused when I'm, you know, talking and sharing knowledge. So. Well, and it's tough over there because People can get offended if you know if meals are, are a pretty important status uh, uh, thing over there. So. I, I guess I was wrong when I said "ew, gross." Right? Was that? <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> it, it's funny because like like I'm I'm willing to eat bugs and things like that. Uh, you know, so I'm not offended at the food, but it's like, hey, if that food's going to knock me out, I'm you know I I don't want to step on your manners, but it's also rude to fall asleep in your plate. So like I'm right. I'm, Take I'm, your pick. You can either have great presentations yeah. or I can sit here and eat. <laughs> yeah, and people hearing this might think we're both crazy, but if you try this kind of thing, you find that your ability to like 
to be in it, to, to, to bring it over and over and over is higher when you're not putting blood in your stomach towards digestive processes, when you've stored enough energy in your body, not necessarily even as fat, when you can use the fat in your body as energy, when you can use the muscle and liver glycogen that comes from eating carbs but doesn't last very long, right. when, you, when you're an equal opportunity energy user, like life changes. And, and you've experienced that as well, very obviously from what you're saying. Right, yeah. Couldn't agree more. Let's talk bugs because I just talked about eating like fried yeah, scorpions yeah, yeah. in China. I'm like, what, what were they fried in? Like I'm the only guy who would ask that about the fried scorpion. But yeah. so, so you have cricket-based bars, crickets. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, this, the company is called Exo and uh, it started by two awesome uh, recent Brown grads, uh, Gabby and Greg. And they started, they, you know, there was a rash of articles over the last year and a half about insects potentially being a healthy, sustainable, um, ethical source of protein, not just in uh, here, but around the world. And, but it didn't seem like there was a lot of action on it. Nobody didn't, there was a lot of talk, no action. So they started to order a bunch of crickets to their, the dorm or the house that they were living in, (laughs) in college, live crickets and their poor roommates. And, and so then they, they started to figure out ways to um, prepare them that people would actually eat them. You know, most, most people, their experience, if they've had, most Westerners or Americans, if they're, their experience with bugs um, may be like a chocolate-covered grasshopper. It's kind of like a novelty gag gift or something like that. Tequila, the worm, man. Yeah, there, there you go, tequila. <laughs> right. Got to have the whole bottle first, though. And, but but what they really wanted to do, which I think is smart, is start to normalize the consumption of insects. Um, so so they they made a they started with a protein bar, and to be honest, the the cricket flour that they use quote flour that they use the powder is odorless and tasteless. So it, people bite into the bar thinking that it's going to have some odd taste, but it actually tastes like coconut oil and dates and cacao and all other delicious things that, uh, that people love. It's, it's interesting how disgust plays such a strong role in what people are willing to eat or not, you know, and, and what you're brought up with and how you're disgusted. I mean, the disgust reflex, a lot of vegans and vegetarians are not at the forefront of eating insects, even though they've talked about it. Because they get, the, honestly, they just get grossed out at anything that resembles an animal product or moves or is, tastes like flesh or anything like that. Just grossed out. They can't stomach it, even if it's more ethical and a, a practical solution to a lot of, to a lot of problems. It's a, it, it's a tough dilemma there. Uh, all right. When you take these things that are relatively high in omega-3 fats... Right. And have, I, I don't actually know the amino acid profile, but. It's uh, amazing. I don't okay. know it off the top of my head, but it's like covers the spectrum. It's okay. Really so impressive. you imagine you're eating a whole bug. So, you know, those feed fish and they feed birds and like they're a reasonable protein, I'm guessing. Um, not right. having, I know there's a lot of chitin, which isn't very absorbable, but you, you get this stuff, but then you grind it into flour. So you're oxidizing the delicate omega-3 fats, you're denaturing the protein. Like how inflammatory is cricket? as a protein, like the dipeptides and tripeptides, do you have any inflammation info on it yet? Um, I don't yet. And, and it, it hasn't been studied very much. Yeah. 
people just aren't 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 talking about it. What what I think is good is these protein bars are just the first step. It, it, it's just the initial product to get people acclimated to the idea that they are eating insects. Um, and then from there, you can develop a supply chain and start to start to come up with more products that that can optimize for health and stuff like that. There is a really good argument for tofurkey made of crickets, not tofu. There's an environmental, there's a soil argument, there's a health argument, like there's a moral and ethical argument, like all of those go into play. So I would eat, you know, a pressed cricket loaf long before I would eat a pressed tofu loaf. Yeah, agreed. Uh, which may surprise a lot of people, but uh, there's, there's a lot to be said there. I, I'm also wondering, what do the crickets eat? Are they grass-fed? So they're, they're, no, they're not grass fed. The, uh, and, and the crickets that are currently grown, the way the supply chain is set up right now is they are fed uh, grain. And, but what's really cool about it is you start to feed them other foods and they start to take on a different nutritional profile and a different taste. You can, if, if you feed hot peppers, uh, or something like that to them, then the crickets actually start to have like a hot taste to them. Nice. It's pretty cool. I, I've um, had termites that tasted vaguely like pine nuts. They're in a forest that had more evergreen. I, I, I totally could see how they would just take up the most active yeah. parts of it, like the, the capsaicin. That's, that's interesting. Right. And, and, and then they're, they're working with a Michelin-starred chef who, who is starting to design you know, different recipes and things like that, more for the gourmet restaurant crowd, not just protein bars and stuff like that. So it's very cool. I, I, um, they, they had an amazing Kickstarter where they were going for about 20K and they ended up with about 55 or 60K. And uh, see, one of the things I feel very passionate, passionately about this, we have to support one of the problems with, with veganism and vegetarianism is that it's essentially a boycott against a product, right? It's people saying, I will not buy meat or animal products period. But as any entrepreneur knows, and you have a lot of entrepreneurs that, that listen to you, if you want to start up an alternative system, an alternative food system that's healthier and more ethical and more humane, then you have to support the entrepreneurs that are doing it right. Right? Because if, if you withhold through a boycott a million dollars from uh, Cargill, it, it, they don't even notice it. It's no. a rounding error. It makes no impact on their decisions and they grow industrially grown soybeans and they turn around and they sell you Boca burgers. Um, however, a million dollars to a bunch of startup food startups and permaculture farms and, and, you know, this EXO, the insect company makes a huge difference. Your, your first dollar of revenue breaking even first dollar, you know, first dollar profit profit. These are, this is a big deal. So in terms of having an impact on, quote, starting up an alternative food system, it makes much more of an impact to contribute dollars to people that are doing it right than to take away dollars from the big players that are doing it wrong. That is such a a wonderful philosophy. One of the things that I'm blatantly trying to do with the Bulletproof Executive is to stimulate demand for the good stuff. Because when you do it, even the big monster companies 
Uh, and I'm, I'm not they get anti- in on the game. They yeah, I'm get not in. anti-capitalist by any measure. Uh, you know, I have an MBA from Warden, which means I'm I'm evil actually. <laughs> right, uh, right. But <laughs> what? Uh, at least from you know some perspectives. But the the point here is you can you can make the big guys do it by torturing them and beating them with sticks and protesting outside their headquarters, or you can simply allocate your dollars to the small guys who do it right. And when that happens, your quality of life will go up so much that eventually when enough people see it, they'll also allocate their dollars that way. And suddenly the small guys are big and the big guys are annoyed about it and they have to fix the crap they're doing. And like, that's how we drive change without, you know, explosions and protests and throwing rocks and things like that. Um, There's a place for that. And, and, you know, certainly it's worked in a lot of the Middle East, um, but I would prefer that change happen because people said, I'm actually not willing at any price to buy industrial chicken because it's not food. It's not food for my dogs. It's not food for my kids. It's not food for me. And when we do that, they have to change the way they do it. Right. And, and it's a it's a peaceful it's a peaceful way of, yeah. of making change. If you actually want an, an old example of you get what you pay for, look at Jewish kosher law. I mean, the, the relatively small Jewish community has been paying a small premium for kosher slaughter and inspection for millennia. And guess what? They've been getting kosher slaughter and inspection for millennia, right? Yeah. So, same, same with halal, right? The, right. Same with halal. It, it, so we know that these rules work. That, that's brilliant, actually, John, that, that you brought that up because all we need is you know the biohacker equivalent or paleo or grass-fed, whatever you want to call it. The, the name isn't that important, but I want to be able to go into a store and be like, I don't want to have to ask, what did the animal eat? And the butcher go, food and you're like no <laughs> like, was it grass yeah they ate some grass right. i'm pretty sure uh, like, right. I, like i want to know and so if everyone else wants to know too and you sit down in your restaurant and you're like oh my god i'm not ordering your beef like you want me to spend 70 dollars on a steak and you can't tell me what the animal ate like and it ate gmos for 70 bucks like screw you buddy bring me a grass-fed steak i'll wait like if right. you said that to the top chef and i've said this in a polite you know friendly joking way they listen like uh, the Epic Roast House in San Francisco, right on the water. They've always had grass-fed corn-finished beef, and now they have two grass-finished steaks on the menu. And like, you know, I don't know if I did it. I certainly talked to them a couple right. times about it. Right. Maybe twittered once or twice. But hey, hats off to you guys, right? Like, you you did it. Thank you. So everyone listening to this, especially right. in New York, you have even more power. Like. Get this. Get the restaurants to do the things like that, and then share it on social media so they see they got the impact. And right. it, it doesn't take that much work. Well, I'm I'm actually putting together right now a, a primal guide to New York City where we're showcasing a lot of the restaurants that are doing it right. I love and 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 we're gonna put some criteria on there to other restaurants and locations. You know, if you want to be on here, here's here are the types of things we're looking for, and, and not you know what the animal eats, but also knows the tail stuff what oil you cook in. I, um, I've, I've become an advisor to a restaurant called Hugh Kitchen uh, in New York, which is near Union Square, and it's, it's fantastic. They have this amazing sign outside that says, we do not cook in canola oil. Oh my God, I wanna, it, tell me their name again, this will be in our show notes. Yeah, uh, Hugh Kitchen, H-U, short for human, uh, kitchen. And uh, it, their tagline is getting back to human. And they, they only cook in either coconut oil or olive oil at low heat. Very respectable. And if every restaurant got that message, 
uh, we would transform some parts of human health just from doing that because the number of people with this, you know, 40 to 1 omega 6 to omega 3 ratio in their blood, and they walk around hurting all the time, tired, foggy, not knowing why. Like, I'm sorry, what your tempura was fried in changes the quality of your thinking. Yeah, it, the um, it, in some ways, I feel like vegetable oils are much more insidious than 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 some grains. Yeah, I couldn't, um, couldn't agree more. Because I I know it's it's on the menu if the grains are there. I know that they're gonna you know I know that the bread is in the bread basket. I know what it is. But all these mystery sauces and soups and I have no idea what's in there. And what, what have they cooked them in? Is this actually been steamed? You know, or what? You know, or was it fried in canola oil that's already been used three times to cook other garbage? It, it, it's pretty much like you can assume if it's at a normal restaurant, it's garbage oils. Even if it's a pretty nice looking, expensive normal yeah. restaurant, and yeah. it's a sauce that came from Cisco Foods, which means it was seventy four percent MSG, so it's not labeled that way, and. From there, who knows? And it, right. it, it's not like the chef is evil. The, the chef is just saying people like it. Like they order more of it. It, it tastes delicious. I tasted it myself. It was wonderful. So right. I'm meeting the market demand, and we just have to change the market demand. Hey, I have an idea for you. Let me float an idea for you. You're familiar with how McDonald's was pressured back in the early 90s to switch from cooking in beef tallow to um, partially hydrogenated vegetable oils, right? And then people realized how awful trans fats were and things like that. We should start some sort of petition or movement to get McDonald's to start cooking in real animal fat. Again. Yeah, we'd have to be like like return to uh, return to the past. You you know to to appeal to the idea that they've done it before. Two questions there. Number one, would anyone who's listening to the show actually go to McDonald's even if they cooked in non grass fed animal fat? <laughs> I don't know. It, it, you know what? If they were willing to make that change, I would go and buy something there. I would. Yeah. yeah. Like a water. The look, look, there are there are No, I I I will sacrifice my health. I look, I will be a sacrifice. I will sacrifice myself for others. What does your shirt say? The the human weapon you just leaned Human forward. weapon. I love yeah, it. Okay, cool. Yeah, there's a guy Tony Blower who does uh, self defense courses. He's a he's a big cross. All right, cool. Yeah. Uh, sorry if you're listening on on the radio. That was a bit of a non sequitur. I'm looking at John. You can see us on YouTube, and he's wearing this cool shirt. It just says hashtag Human Weapon. I'm like that's kind of <laughs> cool. All right, we're getting close to the end of the show, and there's a question that I ask everyone who's ever been on the show. Given everything you know, not just paleo, primal. Etc. What are the top three most important recommendations you have for people to be more bulletproof, to kick more ass in all domains of life? Like the biggest performance upgrades you know? Uh, getting off of sugar and switching to a fat-based metabolism um, would would have to be would have to be near the top of the list. When it comes to movement, I think what people need. So many people, the problem is is not knowing what they need, that they need to move or exercise in some way sometimes, but doing something on it, finding something that motivates them on an ongoing basis so that they actually do it. So, so for, for me, it would be uh, getting off of uh, sugar and processed foods and to a fat-based metabolism, finding some sort of movement that you find fun and that you will do on an ongoing basis. And... Getting a lot, you know, getting enough sleep 
those those don't sound like very uh i I wish i had some sort of like crazy advice that's more like outlandish or something like that but i think it's more fundamental yeah i i believe it i really do (laughs) these these are wonderful pieces of advice uh, so I, I always learn something from asking this, uh, of, of guests on the show. See, when it comes down to it, a lot of people look at paleo and, and sometimes think that it's this like dramatically weird, different, uh, way of eating. But in, in some ways it boils down to Michael Pollan's advice, but being more anti-seed, anti-grain legume mm-hmm. and more pro-meat. And, and, and not looking down on that so much. Can, so, can we say pro-healthy meat? Pro-healthy meat. Pro-industrial meat doesn't work. Like Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah, agreed. I'm with you. Um, I figured you were. I just want our listeners to get that message because if you start being pro-meat and you're like, oh, I just ate you know the, the, the crap chicken, like you won't get the effects, John, that you write about in your book. You won't feel bulletproof. Nothing will happen other than you might grow breasts. <laughs> yeah, the chicken breast, not good. <laughs> Not good. Not good. All right. Your book is awesome and well worth reading. I'll hold it up so people can see it. It's called The Paleo Manifesto. Just launched. Please go out and buy this book and support the work that John is doing. John, give us your Twitter handle, your URL, and all of this will be in the show notes. We'll link to you when we put put this up live. But uh, how do we find you? On Twitter, I'm John Durant, J-O-H-N-D-U-R-A-N-T. Uh, my website is huntergatherer.com, and uh, the, the book is The Paleo Manifesto, and it's everywhere where, where books are sold. And even if you aren't into paleo, you are going to find something that you like in this book. I guarantee it. Yeah, it's it's pretty broad-ranging. It's not yet another paleo book. Is that a an acronym, Y-A-P-V? Maybe maybe we need, a, one. we need a hashtag on Twitter. Yeah. But, uh, I don't want to denigrate anyone's paleo books. There's so much amazing research, and they're not all the same. But if you are already converted, you will find that there's maybe a little, a little bit of overlap in a lot of the paleo books. And you, because you are one of the early paleo guys, you've you've actually had a chance to look at that. And I found your book was had some refreshing stuff in there I haven't seen elsewhere. So totally one I recommend. Cool. Thank you. This was a ton of fun. It was great being on the show. Awesome. Uh, Next time I'm in New York, we'll hook up again. Yeah, definitely. All right. Thanks, John. The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.